You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If you have Bibles, Judges chapter 8 is where we will be today. Judges chapter 8, and starting in verse 4, uh, if you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles, page 207, and then into page 208 uh, is where you will find today's text. Uh, of all the judges, the story of Gideon is the one that has become uh, most personally meaningful for me. Uh, right above the, I have a little desk in my, in my basement, a uh, little basement corner like office thing, no windows down there, little basement. Right above the desk in my basement office, I have a, a framed print uh, of the picture of Gideon from the Jesus Storybook Bible. And in the print of the Jesus Storybook Bible, the story of Gideon, there are these shadowy figures with weapons over their heads lurking in the background. Uh, Gideon is hiding in the wine press, like we read last week, uh, hands over his eyes, and the caption simply reads, Mighty Man of Valor. Mighty Man of Valor. And as we saw last week, that line uh, is both ironic and prophetic. Uh, When we meet Gideon, it's the complete opposite of who he is, but it is, by the grace of God, exactly who who he becomes. And for me, as a, a, I sometimes will describe myself as a recovering people pleaser. Uh, As a recovering people pleaser, that's really powerful to me, that that image. Um, Some people are always picking fights, but others others don't pick enough fights. Uh, There are some people who need to be told over and over again, hey, stop fighting. Stop fighting. There are other people who need to be told, get in the fight. It's time to get in the fight. And that latter part, that's much more true of of me. And so a few years back, a friend and a mentor gave me uh, this print of that story of Gideon from the Jesus Storybook Bible uh, because I'm someone who needs to be reminded regularly, constantly, uh, to live courageously in the light of the new identity that I've been given in Jesus. That is the, the first phase of Gideon's life. Uh, where the grace of God transforms him from cowardice into courage, and he, through the work of God, delivers the the people of Israel. Today, as we get into Judges chapter 8, we're looking at the the latter portion of Gideon's life, uh, where Gideon actually kicks off the next chapter of Israel's downward spiral. And this also has taken on some deep personal meaning uh, for me. The first phase of his life is an example and it's a portrait of who I hope to become by the grace of God. The second phase of his life serves as a warning, specifically a warning about the power and the deceitfulness of sin and how quickly faithfulness can turn to unfaithfulness. Tragically, way too many of us, if we took the time to sit down and talk about this and do this, way too many of us would be able to share experiences Uh, of how we've been affected by the moral failures of leaders, pastors, mentors, parents, friends, I mean, you name it. There are some high-profile failures. It seems like every year there's a few high-profile people that make the news for their failure. Far more painful, though, are the failings of those that we know personally and are affected by personally. I uh, I was reflecting about this with our elders here at Liberty Church recently, Um, Before helping plant this church, 
I was a meaningful part of four different churches over the, the course of my life. In New Jersey, two in Kansas City, uh, one in Texas. And in those churches, three pastors had significant moral failures and disqualified themselves, and two others burned out and weren't in ministry anymore. So I'm very aware of how hard it is for pastors and for spiritual leaders to, to endure. Uh, and I'm under no kind of delusion that I'm somehow above moral failure, that I'm better or that I'm stronger than those who have disqualified themselves, pastors of mine who have disqualified themselves. Uh, I have a real fear and a real trembling about the power and the deceitfulness of sin. And so as much as I desire and, and do at times have godly ambition, uh, godly ambition for more churches to be planted, godly ambition for, the renew, for people to experience renewal in the gospel, ambition for people who don't know the name of Jesus to claim and believe in the name of Jesus, there are some days where I, can, where I just simply find myself praying, Jesus, let me make it to the end of my life with my faith and my integrity intact. Let me just make it. Let me just finish the race and finish it well. And as we look at the, the second phase of Gideon's life, whether you are a leader or aspire to any kind of leader among the people of God or not, we will see here how prone we are to wander. How prone we are to forget and to forsake the God of our salvation and then how devastating the results of that can be. So I invite you now to listen uh, with open ears to this book that we love. This is Judges chapter 8. I'll begin in verse 4. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing so he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him, as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east. For there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nobah and Jogbaha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harris, And he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him, and he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered him, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and fall upon us. 
For as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Then, get, then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in at the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels, uh, shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a, in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, in Ophrah of the Ab- Abiezrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal bereath their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all the enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we bless and thank you for the gift of your word. We ask now that you would grant us the humility and the courage to receive it, that you would prepare our hearts and our lives to be changed by it. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. So Gideon goes from courageous deliverer to the cause of the next chapter of Israel's downward spiral. How does that happen? How does that happen? Two things we see play out in Judges chapter 8 replacing and embracing. We'll spend the rest of our time talking about those two things. Replacing, that he replaces God's agenda with his own, and then embracing, he embraces hypocrisy. He embraces a a false identity and, and hypocrisy. So first, let's talk about replacing God's agenda with his own. Uh, Through the end of of chapter 7, which we read last week, Gideon is clearly the instrument of God's deliverance. So we saw that last week. The whole episode of Gideon's defeat of the Midianite army, it's designed so that neither Gideon nor nor any of Israel can take any credit. This massive Midianite army is routed. They flee. And Gideon and these 300 men, they call out the other tribes of Israel to to chase them out of the land. But Gideon is not content to stop there. And so in verse 4, as we read, he crosses over the Jordan River. Notice there, the other tribes that have been chasing the army of Midian, they stop. They don't cross over the Jordan. Only Gideon and the 300 continue. They're exhausted, but Gideon keeps driving them at this ruthless, relentless pace. Why? Why is he doing this? The enemy is now out of the land. They've been 
decimated from a force of 135,000 down to a force of 15,000. The two princes, Oreb and Zeb, are dead. There's, there's safety, there's security for the people of Israel. Why can't Gideon just stop at the Jordan River and celebrate God's miraculous deliverance? We don't find out until verse 18 and 19. Because when Gideon catches up there with these kings, Zeba and Zalmunna, we learn that those two kings were responsible for killing, killing Gideon's brothers. Sometime before the events of Judges 6 and 7, Midian apparently attacked people at this place called Mount Tabor. And among them, among the, those killed there were, were Gideon's brothers. And so Gideon says to the kings, if you had kept them alive, I would not kill you. So this has become a personal vendetta. This has become a personal vendetta. His motive, Gideon's motive has changed. It's no longer about valor. It's about vengeance. And that, that also explains Gideon's response to the people in these two towns of Succoth and Penuel. Uh, these are the easternmost Israelite settlements. Uh, they are east of the Jordan River, but they are still within the land that God had allotted to several tribes on that side of the river before they all came into the promised land. Uh, but in this particular moment, they are really vulnerable cities because if somehow Midian can rally for a counterattack, if they can recruit other allies and armies to come back with them, the first places that they're going to go are these two cities of Succoth and, and Penuel. So it's understandable why they're hesitant to support Gideon and his men until, until really the whole army of Midian is, is completely subdued and not, not coming back. Gideon's frustration, though, is is also understandable. Imagine yourself in his shoes. The people of these two towns are being cowards. If this were a musical, they would be singing along with Aaron Burr, wait for it, right? I'll keep all my cards close to my chest. I'm gonna wait and see which way the, the wind will blow. That's the people of Succoth and Penuel. They're waiting. They're waiting to see what's gonna play out. But Gideon's response, even if frustration is understandable, his response exposes how his motives really have changed. It's no longer about God's glory. It's no longer about Israel's deliverance. Gideon has made himself the issue. And it's about the people of these two towns, how they're disrespecting him, how they're failing to help him. How different this whole account would sound if Gideon said something like, brothers, come on. Now is the time God is with us. We've just routed the armies of Midian. They're fleeing, so have faith, have courage. Get in the fight with us. How different it would sound if he said that. Instead, as we read in verse 16, he just wants to teach them a lesson for disrespecting him. He beats them. He breaks down their tower. He kills his own people. And he kills them for their failure to act in faith. Now, lest we forget, it has been at most a couple weeks since Gideon himself was constantly asking for reassurance constantly needing the patience and the grace of God to prop him up over and over again. Gideon here is like the man in the parable that Jesus will tell centuries later, who after receiving, um, who receiving uh, freedom from this massive, unrepayable un debt, he's forgiven this unrepayable debt, he immediately turns around and he demands repayment of a tiny one by comparison. There's another part of this account which shows how Gideon's motive has, has changed. When he does capture Ziba and Zalmunna, he instructs, as we read, his firstborn son to kill them. And again, he does this because it's, it's personal. 
This is personal. In this culture, it would be humiliating for a king, for a leader to be killed by a young boy. But since these two kings killed his family, that's exactly what Gideon wants. He wants to humiliate them. So he's going to have the, the first person of the next generation of his own family kill these two kings. This has just gone way beyond God's judgment. It is, it is vigilante justice is what's playing out here in Judges chapter 8. And unfaithfulness, uh, our rebellion against God, begins when we replace God's agenda with our own. When our motive ceases to be God's glory and instead becomes our own glory or our own reputation or our own honor and esteem. Just like Gideon, uh, you and I are, are prone to this. Uh, perhaps in your life, maybe instances in your life, it's been about vengeance or a personal vendetta. You've been slandered. Uh, you've been hurt or wounded. You've been made to suffer significantly by, by the sin of someone else or just by the, the existence of evil in our world. And so you rightly, in those moments, desire justice and cry out to God even for justice. But why? What's the motive for that? Is it, is it God, make right what's gone wrong? God, rise up on behalf of your name and your world and people created in your image. Is that what comes out of your heart? Or is it instead, how dare you? How dare someone do that to me? You will pay. I will teach you a lesson. We can also replace God's agenda in a number of other ways. We can do this with ambition. So are we being stewards of gifts and opportunities that God has given to us and trying to make the most of them? Or are we actually out to prove something about ourselves? Are we pursuing excellence in praise of our creator who has made all things good? Or are we just really discontent and insisting that we deserve something better and so striving for, for more? We can also do this with comfort and security. The, the Christian life is a life through and through of faith-filled risk. Not folly, not, not foolishness, but, but things really that, that would not make sense unless the Spirit of God were dwelling in us. Things that would, just wouldn't work unless God would show up in power and act on our behalf. We can replace God-dependence, God-reliance with self-reliance for the sake of comfort and security. And we can also do this with capacity. Uh, we are a church of busy people. We're a church of busy people. Nine years in, it's always been that way. It's always been that way. We have a lot of highly educated, highly motivated, upwardly mobile, competent people. And so you will have no shortage of things in your life to fill your time with. But capacity, time, uh, is always about priority. It's always about priority. We will make time for the things that truly, at the end of the day, matter to us. And so it's not a question if, of whether or not you're going to be busy. We actually should expect to live most of our lives being busy with something. The question is, with what? The question is, will our busyness reflect that we are servants of Jesus for the sake of other people? Or, or does our busyness reveal that we're making ourselves available for God to build his kingdom? Or does it reveal that we're simply building these little mini-kingdoms of, of our own? If we're not serving, uh, if we're not 
being financially generous, if we're not seeing our neighborhood or our workplace as a place where God has sent us as a missionary, that means that we are replacing God's agenda with our own. So replacing is a huge part of Gideon's unfaithfulness, how he goes from this faithful deliverer to the cause of the next downward spiral. But so is embracing. Embracing. And specifically, our second point this morning, embracing hypocrisy and a false identity. So look again there with me at verse 23. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Okay, first of all, who saved Israel from the hand of Midian? God did. Gideon is not the only one in this account who completely misses here. The people who up until recently had been hiding in caves, hiding in caves, they witnessed this great deliverance, this miraculous deliverance, 300 routing 135,000, and they immediately then credit the human instrument rather than God. It's like going to see the Sistine Chapel and marveling at what you see painted on the ceiling and then stepping back and saying, Wow, that paintbrush did a great job. What a gift. Thanks, paintbrush. That's amazing. Now, to his credit, Gideon here says exactly the right thing in response. They say, be our king. He says, no, I will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. In other words, we already have a king. We already have a ruler. It's God himself. It's an incredibly faithful and true response from Gideon. Well done. Except... That after rejecting the title of king, he immediately assumes a king's lifestyle. Wealth, many wives, at least one concubine, and a son from his concubine in Shechem, he even names Abimelech, which means in Hebrew, my father is king. So the name itself says something about what he thinks of himself. We'll actually see more of Abimelech next week when we get to, to chapter 9. But Gideon here doesn't just live like a king. He also assumes the role of a priest. Uh, first, as we read, he asks for all the gold earrings from the spoils of Midian's army. And out of them, he makes this golden ephod, which is a, a priestly garment, something that priests would wear. Now, in the Bible, when someone asks for gold jewelry to melt down and form into something else, you should be nervous. You should be wary of where that's leading. It does not lead to, to good things. This immediately remind, would remind the original readers as well as us today of how Moses' brother Aaron in the wilderness took all of the jewelry, the gold jewelry, from the people, melted it down, and made out of it a golden calf. Only the idolatry with this ephod actually lasts a lot longer than the golden calf. In fact, this here is the first time in the book of Judges where the people of Israel begin to spiral downward during not after the tenure of one of the judges. They start their downward spiral while Gideon is still alive because of this ephod. Now, beyond the fact that it becomes this, this idol, which is a huge deal, the ephod is also a terrible thing because Gideon asserts himself to be something he is not. Uh, he's not a Levite. He's not a priest. He has no business making an ephod. And he puts this ephod in his hometown, in the city of, of Ophrah. Uh, at this point in history, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was in Shiloh. Uh, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was housed. That's where the holy place was. That was where God had said, here is where I will be present with you, my people. 
But by making this ephod and by putting it in his hometown, Gideon is trying to keep himself at the center of things. He sets up a a rival holy place. It's really, he's presenting another option where people can supposedly go and inquire of the Lord. And oh, by the way, it's in my backyard where I happen to have set myself up to live like a king. Come and see me. Come and see my wealth. Come and see my 70 sons. See, Gideon has embraced a false identity. He's radically overestimated himself. He is bought into his own hype which is all the more horrific when we remember that he was least in his father's house, which was the weakest of all of the clans in Manasseh. When we remember that he was a coward, that he needed constant reassurance from God. How quickly he has forgotten those things and how quickly we forget in our lives. The human heart, our hearts are constantly grasping to take credit for success. We pass the blame for things that go badly in an instant. If something goes wrong, hey, it's your fault. That's on you. You got it. But if something goes well, if there's any opportunity for us to say, man, I'm awesome, look at me. The the sinful nature, the flesh in us will do anything it can to claim that credit. That's why success is often so much more dangerous for us than failure is. When we fail, we're a lot more likely to be humbled by that. We're aware of our weakness. We're aware of our insufficiency. But when we succeed, when things go well, not so much. With Gideon, that's displayed pretty vibrantly. Uh, He claims credit and he lives out his days with this radical overestimation of himself. And he wears it on his sleeve. Anyone who would know Gideon the rest of his life would see his wealth, women, worship in his own hometown. But it starts, it starts much more subtly than that. It starts when he says the right thing, but doesn't actually believe it. It starts when he rejects the offer to be king, but goes on to live like one anyway. It starts when he becomes comfortable with this gap between what he says and what he does. In other words, it starts when Gideon embraces hypocrisy. Now, in one sense, Christians are hypocrites. Can we just acknowledge that and own that together this morning? Christians are hypocrites. And by that I mean we constantly fall short of the standards that we proclaim. So we profess a standard of Christ-likeness. We call both ourselves and other people to be like Christ. And then we miss. But there's a difference between being a repentant hypocrite and embracing hypocrisy. Repenting Uh, turning back to God, receiving his grace again, pursuing faithfulness to him again. I mean, this is the Christian life. This is the Christian life. That's why we take time each week when we gather in our worship services to confess our sins. That's the beauty of the gospel, that God is not one who saves perfect people. Thanks be to God. He just saves repentant people, repentant hypocrites like you and me. But if we become comfortable with the gap, between what we say and how we live. If, if I become complacent about the ways in which my life does not emulate Christ-likeness, and especially then if that is matched with overestimating myself and buying into my own hype, well, that's the fast track to idolatry, to apostasy, to, to shipwrecking not only your life, but the lives of many people around you. And this is how, as a pastor named Barry Webb put it, 
the man who began his career in Ophrah by leading Israel out of idolatry ends his career by leading them back into it. So this is the question for us to consider in our own lives this morning. Men and women, are you, is your life leading people out of idolatry or into idolatry? And whether you are a leader in some capacity or not, whether you aspire to be a leader in any capacity or not, we are always reproducing our lives by our interactions and by our examples. Discipleship, spiritual formation is inevitable. Uh, It's never a question of whether we want to participate in our own discipleship or in the discipleship of others. It's always what kind of discipleship. It's always whose image are we being formed into and whose image are we helping form others into. And as it's been really aptly said, we can teach what we know. We can teach what we know, but we will replicate, we will reproduce who we are. Even if we say, like Gideon, God is king, even if we say the right things, if we then go on to live like a king, we will replicate self-reliance and arrogance and idolatry, even if we said the right things. So church, be sensitive to the power and the deceitfulness of sin. Let this second phase of Gideon's life wake you up to that. As the Apostle Paul goes on to write in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Gideon here replaces God's agenda with his own. And he embraces hypocrisy. He embraces this false identity. Underneath both of those things really is pride. It's pride. And however long we've been following Jesus, pride is that kind of sin that is always crouching at the door. Uh, not, always, not only crouching at the door, but even has maybe put its foot in the door of your life. Or maybe if the door's been closed, it snuck around back and found an open window and tried to get in that way. We can never assume faithfulness and maturity. We can never sit back and say, well, I've been a Christian a long time, so therefore I'm mature and I'm being faithful now. The way I'm doing things is the faithful way because... I've been a follower of Christ. I've been faithful in the past. We have to always examine ourselves. We have to always be aware of the fact that we love to slap God's name on top of our own agendas and call it the same thing. So for example, there are, you might be a person or you might know people who say, I'm all about church unity. Well, are you? Because you can start by pursuing unity and end up a Unitarian. You, can, you might say, I'm a truth teller. I love the truth. I'm vigilant for the truth of God. Are you? You can start by being committed to truth and end up a self-righteous, loveless jerk. You might say, I'm a standard bearer for faithfulness in the church of Jesus Christ. I'm a standard, for, uh, standard bearer for Christian faithfulness. Are you? You can start there and end up piling on your own preferences and your own legalisms and wind up unintentionally shutting the door of the kingdom of God in people's faces. Or you might say, I'm an agent for justice in the world. Are you? Because you can start there and you can end up very easily proclaiming a godless form of justice which cancels people who disagree and from which transgressors have no hope of redemption. Overnight, your valor can become merely vengeance and vendetta. As Paul Tripp put it, we look at ourselves in carnival mirrors. We look at ourselves in carnival mirrors. We see distorted images of ourselves. And that means we need to be known 
among the people of God. We need to be humble and vulnerable and approachable, not, not isolated or untouchable or unquestionable in our lives. But even more than that, it means that we must look to Jesus, that we must fix our eyes on him. It's the only way to see clearly enough to not have a distorted picture of ourselves. See, we are the ones who replace God's agenda with our own. We are the ones who overestimate ourselves. We are the ones who, though we are not kings, embrace hypocrisy and start to live like one anyway. But Jesus is the king, the one who could not possibly overestimate himself. And yet, being in the very form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, submitted himself fully and willingly to God's agenda, and humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. And you and I are meant to look to, at that cross over and over again in our lives and remember, what do I have that I did not receive? What in my life is not a gift of God's grace? What credit can I take for anything when in order to rescue me, the maker of heaven and earth had to humble himself to this? See, somehow, in spite of all of this unfaithfulness, Gideon dies in a good old age. Somehow, the land still has 40 years of rest. Somehow, Gideon's name still shows up in Hebrews chapter 11 in the Hall of Faith. God will accomplish his purposes. He will find a way through us or in spite of us to pour out his grace on his people. And there is no clearer picture or evidence of that than the cross of Jesus Christ. So let us learn from Gideon's example. Let's learn from his good example in the first phase of his leadership. Let's learn from his bad example in the second. But learning what we can, then let us take our eyes off of Gideon and put them on Jesus. Because in seeing Jesus, we have a hope of seeing ourselves clearly. So may you look at Christ, may you see yourself clearly, and in him and by his grace, may you make it to the end of your life with your faith and your integrity intact. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. We praise you, God our Father, that you have made your divine truth real to us in Jesus Christ. We are grateful this morning, Father, that you save not perfect people, but repentant people. And somehow, miraculously, even when we see no evidence of Gideon's repentance in his life, you continue to pursue him because somehow he ends up in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. We confess our need again this morning for your grace. We confess again our, our proclivity to abandon and reject you, to wander away from you, to buy into our own hype, to take credit for the successes of our lives. We confess, Father, that we need you to help us see ourselves clearly. And we, we thank you that you have given us, Jesus, your own life and death and resurrection, that you have taken the low place and humbled yourself to the point of death, that in you and by your grace, uh, we, can, we can see ourselves clearly. We can remain humble. We can remain dependent and desperate for you to act on our behalf. And so we ask this morning, Father, that what we do and the way that we live, and the way that we love would increasingly become a worthy response 
for the great salvation you have accomplished for us in Jesus. We pray that in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.